0: Welcome back to the Ramen Club podcast, where we discuss stories, tactics, and actionable insights that will help you take your Bootstrap startup to ramen profitable and beyond. Today, we have a very special guest, a longtime member and friend of the Ramen Club community, Andy Cloak. Andy is the founder of Datafetcher, an Airtable plugin letting you connect Airtable to any application or API with no code. On today's episode, you'll learn how Andy Bootstrap passed 10K MRR, his framework for discovering profitable SaaS ideas, how he came up with his Raman profitable goal, and much more. I was very excited about this conversation and it more than lived up to my expectations. So without further ado, let's get into this one. Hello, Andy. How are you doing, mate? Yeah, good. Great to be here. I think we've done one, or two of the interviews before over the years as, as you've hit kind of certain milestones, but I think it's nice to, to hit like the kind of quintessential indie hacker milestone of about... Thank you and kind of check in with you and see how things have been going. Yeah, Robert Club's been a huge part of it. And we came before that with like my last project and this one. Yeah, it's been, it's been a massive part of it. Yeah. Well, it's been great having you in the community from day one. So, you know, the thing's definitely mutual. And, um, you know, there's with these podcasts, like you kind of sometimes you do go over like, you know, questions that you may have asked answered in the past before or a lot recently. But I do think for a lot of people, sometimes the simple questions are very valuable. So. I think just for those who are not too used to you, Andy and your story and Data Fetcher, why don't you describe a bit more about what Data Fetcher does and who it's for? So, Data Fetcher
1: is an Airtable extension. For anyone that's not familiar with Airtable, it's very similar to Google Sheets. For some use cases, it's it's, it's a lot more easy to use, and so a lot of kind of small businesses will use it to, to manage their operations. And yeah, Data Fetcher sits on their marketplace, so they've got a marketplace similar to Shopify or or you know HubSpot or whatever do. So it's an extension of the marketplace. And what it does specifically is it lets you import data from other places. So if you want to pull in metrics, Google analytics, prices from finance API, any sort of third party, it lets you do that. And so it's quite similar to a tool like Zapier or what was Integra is now make.com. But for certain use cases, it's kind of a lot easier to use data Fetcher specifically because it's it kind of sits within Airtable. So you're not changing tabs. Um, it can do certain things that Zapier and other tools can't, and so It's kind of a competitor to Zapier's Airtable integration rather than like the whole of Zapier, right, which is how I've managed to kind of carve out a little niche for it as sort of one person
0: team. I guess with API type tools like this, there's just like, you know, creating like a customer persona must almost become difficult because like there's so many ways that people could use it or like different types of companies and that kind of thing. But like, are there any kind of typical just commonalities between your customers or just like ways you think of different types of personas? Um, there's a few different kind of major like use cases that I see over
1: yeah. and over. And then kind of, and like often that's, they're using the same API, right? So it'll be marketers connecting to Google analytics, connecting to Facebook ads, trying to pull their metrics, or it'll be agencies doing that on behalf of their clients. So that like marketing agencies want to pull everything into Airtable and then create like reporting in it that they then show to the, to their clients. So that's kind of a massive one. And then like another big one is like finance and like crypto and exchange rates and stuff like that. So people kind of managing their personal portfolio or like, yeah, they're kind of their company stuff through Airtable. So those are two of the the really big, just like common use cases. But then I see kind of types of personas. And what this often is, is like someone's using a legacy system. For example, if they run like a suite of like yoga studios, they've got to use MindBody online, because that's like everyone uses to do their, their bookings and their class management and stuff. But they're using that, but they don't actually like it very much. So they're stuck with it. They can't change all their booking processes. But they want to get their data out of that legacy system into Airtable, because AirTable is really nice to use. And so they use data fetcher to basically just import everything every 15 minutes. Everything is pulled in from the legacy system into Airtable where they can build automations, they can create like client portals, whatever they need to do. And so I've got a few people. So there's one using like a chalet CRM, one using your Mind Body Online. And like there's all sorts of different CRMs and kind of old systems like that that they're kind of piping the data into, into AirTable. So I'm starting to see, yeah, a few use cases that come up again and again. But yeah, as you say, it's, it's super broad, and so in some ways that's great because it means I'll never run out of like content topics or kind of integrations to build. But it does make targeting those people like a, quite a lot harder, right? So the one thing they've all got in common is is the Airtable users, and so I think staying in the niche of Airtable is is going to be the path forward with all the platform risk and, and kind of other nuances that that come with that.
0: Yeah, I definitely want to touch on that a little bit later. And just on the different types of API-based use cases, like, do you ever have you seen any kind of that you can talk about any particularly like weird or funny or just like memorable sort of things yeah. that people have been using it for? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, probably the strangest one that, I, or like the one I was most surprised paid
1: for data. sorry, paid for data fetcher. So there's a sewing social network right where people swap sewing patterns. It's called Ravelry. It's <laughs> been going for like ten years. It's it kind of it's got a Wikipedia page mm-hmm. and stuff. Someone's connecting to their API and importing sewing patterns on a schedule to AirTable and they're like a paid user, which is mental. Someone else, they're like a like OnlyFans person or like a streamer. They're pulling in their like <laughs> metrics from like one of these like adult streaming sites. Yeah, there's there's
0: so many, so many niche ones. There's um there's, you know, there's lots of like tactical stuff I want to ask you about, but before we get to that, I just want to ask a little bit more about you, just a bit about your journey to get to this point. You know, you've gone from zero to ten k KMRs it's, it's quite a feat, but like before that, so I, I, do, I understand that you didn't study software engineering at university, right? You studied, was it mechanical engineering? Uh, it was kind of everything. So yeah. um, uni I went to did, you just studied like general engineering. And the idea was it, first
1: year you kind of studied a bit of everything and then you slowly specialized and you graduated as a civil engineer or mechanical engineer or whatever. I realized within the first year that I did not particularly like any kind of engineering. And so yeah. managed to change course to engineering, economics and management. Which is great because it was a bit broader, studied a load of like macroeconomics and quite interesting stuff like that. But yeah, graduated with like a hodgepodge of different engineering modules and some econ and management stuff. Yeah. And then after that, kind of had this feeling in my gut. I'd always like messed about with building little websites and stuff, but not really taking it that seriously. Like I'd done a couple for like mates, or I'd messed about with WordPress and I'd built like my mum a site for her business and like little things like that. And I kinda always knew like I'd probably gonna end up doing that, but I'd never really like sat down and learned to code properly. And so, yeah, graduated, messed about a bit. I went to, went traveling and stuff and then realized that I kind of needed to get a career at some point. So like basically moved home and just learned to code for three or four months. And that was kind of, yeah, how I, how I kind of made the switch. And then, yeah, got a job as a software developer for two of my friends from uni at their startup. So yeah, had a bit of an in there and just learned loads of the senior engineer there. Um, so yeah, that yeah, like react and TypeScript and yeah, kind of front end stuff. And then yeah, started freelancing. So that was like the next step after that. And then kind of freelance for a bunch of different
0: startups. So yeah, that was kind of a path from engineering to coding. And where did entrepreneurship come into it? Is that something that kind of, you said your mom has a business, is that something that sort of ran in the family you've always wanted to do? Were you like a kid with a lemonade stand or did just sort of naturally evolve a bit later? Yeah, it was definitely that desire to have my own thing was always there.
1: I mean, just really unsuccessfully for for loads of years. So, like, yeah, I was a kid that were like, I was like buying chewing gum, taking it to school, and then like selling it. And then, like, I was buying Lego in bulk. So, I was buying like 10 kilos of Lego at a time on eBay, splitting it up into like small packets, and then reselling it on eBay and just basically doing like arbitrage like that. So, it was always like, I've always had little hustles and very few of them made any money. The Lego, I think I spent a whole summer on it and made like four or 500 quid, which. Sounds great. And then I worked out the hourly rate was like £2.50. So yeah, there was always, there was always a lot of things that I wanted to do. And then I think that was part of the reason for switching from engineering to coding was like with coding, you, you can literally launch your own thing as a, as a one person team. Like to do that on engineering is basically impossible. It's really, really difficult unless you, you know, you need capital. You probably need a team. It takes a lot longer to be senior and to try, like be a consultant and get those. High day rates and stuff, which give you the freedom to, to own your own time a bit more. So yeah, that was part of the reason for, for switching. But yeah, my mom has a, she's self-employed rather than like a yeah. huge business, but she's self-employed. My brother has a little business. He's a tree surgeon. So yeah, there's definitely, I think something in the, in the family as well. So yeah, that was kind of, that was always there, that, that desire. And then once I was working as a freelance developer, I was doing stuff on weekends. So yeah, I was always doing like launching little, little projects and trying to, trying to get something off the ground.
0: Yeah, as I understand, and currently, if I'm wrong, your, your your first kind of major successful data fetcher was was a site called Influence Grid, which lets people search for uh, TikTok influences for campaigns and that sort of thing. And something I think is particularly interesting is the sort of framework that you use to discover that idea and also to discover data fetcher. Do you want to talk a little bit about like how you how you use that to find like that framework to find low competition ideas? Yeah, sure. So yeah, both. Data fetcher and Influence Grid kind of followed a very similar pattern. And
1: essentially the, the framework is is looking at like a new platform that's that's taken off. And there's a really good site to do this, which is called Exploding Topics. And yeah, looking at that. And then what it does is it basically services like Google search volume, um, Google Trends, and shows you platforms, like ideas, just keywords, right? But like a lot of them are businesses or platforms or whatever that are taken off. And so in the case of Influence Grid, that was TikTok. For Data Fetcher, it was Airtable. And looking at like a, a similar platform that but this more mature, right? So for Airtable, that's just Google Sheets. For Influence Credit, it was Instagram. And basically saying, okay, so what exists on those on those more mature platforms that I could build? What's the equivalent tool I could build for the new platform? And essentially just just building mm-hmm. an equivalent tool as quickly as possible, for, and then relying on the fact that on this new platform, it's most likely going to be a need for the same tool for, for this thing and then building it. And yeah, it seems to have worked quite well. It's, I think it's quite good in Yakus because it's like, you're you're tying yourself to one platform but it kind of makes it way more manageable and um, if you're willing to live with a platform risk of doing that then you can often like find a little a little niche so another example would be like notion forms but by julian who's yeah a huge successful basically you notice know, the on air table if you've got um like a table of data they give you just by like a, a default feature on Airtable, table you can just create a form off that table and it'll have all the fields that correspond to all the fields in your in your air table and you thought why wouldn't people on notion need this like this should exist for Notion, Notion just launched an API. So there's that element of like fortunate timing as well. And he basically built an equivalent tool for for Notion Forms and he's at like 13K MRR or something. So like, I think that, that framework can work really well. And I think the other nice thing beyond just like finding product ideas is it helps you with the marketing as well, because you look at what marketing did that original tool do. And I can just do that same thing for the new, the new platform. So for the last project, I looked at what keywords all these Instagram platforms were in. Placed Instagram with TikTok in in a keyword, and then just built all these landing pages. And the keyword volume was zero, right? But I could tell it was about to, to go up. And so you're kind of you get some of the first landing pages and the first like results, and then slowly it just like ticks. So yeah, I don't think it's a great framework if you want to raise funding or go for like a massive massive um actor or whatever. But I think for for kind of bootstrap indie type businesses, it can work with well.
0: that. Yeah, I think it's a great framework. By the way, it makes several sense. Are there any other platforms that are taking off or have been taking off? You think? perhaps are worth looking at besides Airtable and TikTok, obviously. Yeah, I think Notion, um, I'm desperate to come up with some sort of like Notion idea because it just seems like
1: the energy around like the Notion community and the stuff on like Twitter is just huge. Now that they've just launched an API there, there must be kind of ideas out there, but yeah,
0: I feel like Notion's the one that i would be most looking at the moment. It's a bit of an obvious one, but yeah, that's probably where I'd be looking at. Yeah, I've seen some cool stuff. I've seen um, a product called Feather recently, which is like blogging on Notion. And obviously there's Super as well for making websites, but there must be tons of other things you can use on it, actually. Yeah. If people like spending all day in Notion and not having to leave it and doing more and more activity there, kind of, think that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, even Super, right? There's
1: Potion as well, which is just another version, which is basically Super. It's just like another website builder on Notion. And then there's, I think, HelpKit. Which is basically like within that niche of turning Notion into a website, turning it into a help center. So, yeah, you could probably even fragment like existing tools into kind of specific niches because the growth of that underlying platform is just so massive that, yeah, you can turn it into a load of different use cases.
0: And, yeah, with that same framework we were discussing, so you eventually sold Influence Grid for, was it 55K, which is a great outcome. And you were kind of thinking about your next one. What was the story of how you used that framework thing? come across space Fetcher Because it sounds like there were some other experiences you had, which kind of all combined to, to lead you to it.
1: Yeah. So I was basically just sort of stumbling around trying to find the next idea. And so what that involved was, yeah, looking on exploding topics, looking at product turn, looking at like products, forums, so like notions forums or tables forums, whatever, trying to find like little, little pain points so I could kind of fill. And there was also when newsletters were massive, like middle of 2020. So I thought maybe I can do some sort of programmatic newsletter where I don't actually need to write all the content. I can just kind of, yeah, have the content, have a bit of manual creation, but then it basically is just surfacing like numbers. And so the idea I kind of settled on was IPO alerts. So looking at upcoming IPOs and alerting like retail investors to the IPOs in the same way that like institutional investors might get alerted. And yeah, I wanted to manage all the content from Airtable. I'd seen that Airtable was like becoming really, really popular. And I thought just as a kind of little test, maybe I could, could pipe all this data into a table and then use that to create the newsletter. And I wanted to do like a follow-up. So like here's last week's IPOs, this is the starting price that they went on to market as. here's the price now, and has it gone down, whatever. And I couldn't find a nice way to just pull those stock prices in. There were a couple of tools, but they all seemed a bit like janky and a bit, or a bit expensive or too hard, like too intense to like set up the stuff yourself. So I just pulled the prices in manually because it wasn't worth the, the effort trying the tools. So yeah, I launched that. Waited about a week, realized there was a much better IPO newsletter out there and kind of, yeah, it was going to take a lot to like, anywhere hear that. And then a couple of weeks later was yeah, doing the daily product on like trawl and saw there's a tool called API connector and that was data fetcher for Google Sheets, basically. So a way to connect to APIs. And that was the, the light bulb moment, I guess, where I was like, okay, so that problem I had two weeks ago with Airtable trying to get stock prices in, this would solve that for Sheets. Why don't I build this for it? and yeah, the nice thing is API Connector have now copied features from Data Factory back into to their tool. So we have like a really good relation, a relationship. And yeah, I didn't just completely clone it. I kind of looked at like why that worked, but then worked like kind of looked also at like, how is Airtable to different to Sheets? So it is fundamentally quite different in terms of how they treat data. It's a database, not a spreadsheet. So it wasn't just a case of like copying it, but it was like, use that as the starting point. And then how would you port this over to to Airtable in a way that kind of makes sense. And interestingly, actually, I've just got a competitor, so my second competitor, like directly on the marketplace, and they've got a really successful Google Sheets add-on. They got like a similar number of installs, I think, to API connector, and they've just launched on Airtable. Luckily for me, they built it exactly as you'd build it on Sheets. So every time you do an import deletes all your data and creates it from scratch, which makes absolutely no sense. And so there is that nuance between platforms that you need to really pay attention to. And so. Yeah, I think that's another reason to just go really hard on one one platform rather than trying to like spread yourself too thinly across platforms.
0: Yeah, I think this is a really interesting topic as well, especially when it's more of a bootstrapped tool and you don't have like you know teams of people who can just like take this and make it work across multiple platforms. It's you know, mostly you. What's your decision-making process around focusing on Airtable versus you know? Maybe hiring some contract devs and trying to make it work on other things like Monday, maybe sheets yourself, maybe something else.
1: For long. I'm like definitely for the first year I was thinking like this is gonna go multi platform and I was thinking like that that's the way to remove that that platform risk. And I actually ended up launching a Monday or trying to launch a Monday app earlier in the year with that aim of just being like, if I could get half the MRR from one from a different platform or even like third or a quarter, even just some revenue stream that's not complete dependent on Airtable, that'd be worth it. I got slightly burned by that, mainly for technical reasons. But yeah, it just became really tricky to build on the Monday platform. And it actually started killing my mo- motivation to work on the project at all. Well. So I kind of sacked it off that for a few weeks. But yeah, it's definitely something I'd consider again, but I think it would be a totally different ballgame. Just in terms of development and the code base and like the, the maintenance of it, I think it would mean you'd probably want to raise like a little bit of funding or would need to like plow most of the revenue into hiring like another like developer or two, like I think it'd be really a manageable one-person team. And not that like you couldn't do it, but you couldn't do it to a really good standard. And I think the reason that people switch from Zapier to DataFetcher is that within that use case, I just pay more attention to detail than like even a big big company can because it just, it's just so specific. Now, the flip side of that is if Airtable will want to kill it at any point, or they want to build the equivalent thing and, and launch it into their product, they might, right? And so that's kind of terrifying. And so you also have to weigh up like, how likely are they to do that? And the way I look at it is they've got a, a feature called sync, which lets you sync to like Salesforce or Google Calendar or whatever. And so there is a real risk that they, they could broaden that, but that sync feature is very no code. Like it's, it's quite easy to use, but it's also like, because my tool's really flexible and people are using it with all these different APIs, I think it's really unlikely that Airtable would launch something that's like quite as flexible as that. And so I think I'm kind of building like just outside of where they want to go with their product because their thing is slightly less technical. And so we overlap a bit from like certain use cases because I've got certain no code, like these kind of like pre-built like templates. But yeah, I think they're quite happy that like Data fetcher fills this gap and they're definitely going for like the ecosystem play and like having a platform where, you know, the the sum of what all the developers build across the platform, third party and Developers is kind of bigger than what they could just build on their own, but yeah, it's it's definitely like that's the the big scary thing about the business. And I think yeah, the my kind of solution to that is probably just try and rinse it for all it's worth at the moment by being in a, one specific platform. It means I can like I check the airtable subreddit and forums and stuff like that like every day, and so that just gives you like that little bit of like attention to detail that like a tool that's crossed loads of platforms doesn't have. So I want to rinse that for all it's worth. Try and get as much of the funds in uh, the profits into index funds. And then hopefully one day, you know, if they, if they do build it or some massive competitor or something comes along, like, hopefully I will have made enough money to, for it not ruin yeah. my life. But yeah, we'll see. It's, it's definitely a, that's a risk reward thing that's like pretty intrinsic to the business.
0: Cause when a marketplace or app is making these sort of ecosystem plays, you know, they've got to think about the trust that devs are going to have in in their platform that they're not just going to absolutely rug someone and just like yeah. copy their feature, which, you know, Twitter, I think, made that mistake a few years ago when they, well, they just removed their entire, I think, most of their API yeah. access. Have you had much communication with their table about fetch or anything else? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're a big fan of what I'm doing. They're really supportive.
1: So yeah, I deal with the product manager on their like, platform too, who's responsible for like the marketplace and the API and, and kind of any, any kind of interaction with third-party developers. And yeah, like... They follow me on Twitter. They celebrate when I have like a big milestone and stuff, or that they'll, they'll like drop it in an email and stuff. So like they're super supportive so far. And like, I think they, so say with Apple, right? They've, they've basically got a duopoly. And so there's been quite a few examples of them just basically like cloning someone's like iOS app into the operating system and someone just like completely losing their business overnight. I think with Airtable, because they're not like the only sort of tool that you like no code tool that you could use for that. I think the, the risk of that is a lot less because they, as you say, like they don't want to burn developers. They want to keep good relations. They want it to be a good thing to to build on. And they've got a whole team dedicated to making it a good platform to build on. So I think, I think the risk is less at the same time, if all of their enterprise customers were asking for a tool like Data Fetch for Free, like, yeah, they they could totally build it. So I'm not kind of naive about that. I do think there's a decent chance of it working.
0: That's great to hear that though very supportive like that. And I guess one of the other benefits being on a marketplace is for marketing. I think you've said before that most of your installs come from the marketplace itself rather than outside their table. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's probably, it varies from month to month, but like historically it's probably
1: about 80% of customers come, like I can see that they they've just found it through the marketplace. They've searched for like API and then they've installed it. So yeah, it's been, been massive. And I think there's not that many apps in there. Like even two years after they launch it, it's probably only like a hundred apps on um, the marketplace. So there's not like loads of people trying to build on it. Obviously that's going to st- slowly tick up, but like, yeah, it's it's a massive source of like leads at the moment. It's obviously hard to do attribution when you have a marketplace like that. This is like having your own site. So you can't put like a, a track and pixel or anything like that on there. So the way that I kind of try and do the attribution is looking at the use case that someone has. Uh, so when they become a customer... And I see, is this one that I've got a YouTube video on, or is this just like their own stuff? And so if it's um, their own stuff, I just kind of machine they come from the marketplace. And then obviously asking people as well, that want to do support on like customer interviews. And yeah, most people say they just found it through the marketplace. So yeah, that's another huge benefit of being really early to, to the platform.
0: Yeah. Besides the marketplace, your main growth channels are kind of educational blog posts and YouTube videos, like you were saying, right? And how did you arrive on those two? I mean, they make sense. But did you see like, there were analogous companies where this had worked well and thought that was good for you? Or was there any other kind of things you tried? Yeah, it was the same company I copied the idea from, API Connector.
1: (laughs) So they, yeah, they've got a really thorough blog with all different use cases. And then they were just starting to experiment with YouTube videos as well. And they were getting some like good view numbers. and, And I spoke to Anna who runs it and she was saying that the YouTube videos were going really well. So the, yeah, the, the YouTube ones are kind of, there was a Airtable support post about someone's use case that they wanted to want to extract favicons from websites. So super specific. Yeah, I found an API where you could do that, made a little like two-minute YouTube video and replied in the forums with that video just as to, to test if, if anyone would watch it, if they'd follow it. And yeah, it answered their question, they followed it. And then over the next few weeks, I noticed that a few other people also followed that YouTube video, like I hadn't promoted it anywhere, but clearly like YouTube services to people that are interested in their table. And then people were seeing it in the forum as well. So that was kind of, yeah, my experiment with that inspired by API connector. And then I kind of tried to take like a more systematic approach and looked at, you know, what are the most common APIs that we're connecting to? So turning those, each of those into a tutorial and yeah, it's worked really, really nicely. It's still hard to say like how to do the attribution exactly, but yeah, I think it, it works pretty well. And there's, a, there's so many different topics I can, can do for it. And yeah, the nice thing about YouTube, I think is whereas SEO, it takes quite a while to rank and stuff. YouTube will immediately start showing your, your YouTube video to people who are interested in their table. And so it's not like you need to then go promote it on Twitter and on like whatever subreddits or whatever. It just kind of sits there and just, just slowly the views tick up. And even if the view numbers aren't that big, if it's a really specific use case like this, like the intent behind them is really high, right? So. The chance of someone following it and then converting is, is pretty
0: high. Yeah. I think it's an interesting point about, you know, just cause something doesn't get like tens of thousands of views doesn't mean it's not valuable because like you said, it has very high intent, but something else I want to ask is just on the number of channels. Like, do you have to deliberately stop yourself from like trying out like, I don't know, paid ads or like a bunch of other things that like seem like sexy or they'd be, they'd be valuable. Do you deliberately try just to keep it quite focused on like those two channels or are you thinking of expanding? Yeah. What? Uh, I'd love to, know the MRI is a bit but I'd love to try
1: and like paid ads to see if I can get something working. I think as soon as I could see that a channel was working, it was a case of like, right, rinse that for, for all it's worth. And I definitely want to be more aggressive just within SEO and, and YouTube. So at the moment, I'm probably putting out three bits of content a month, three to four. And I think I'd love to get that up to like, you know, Six, seven, eight. Like, if I get two bits of content out a week, I think like that would be massive. As well as kind of moving up the funnel a bit. So at the moment they're all super specific use cases. I think it'd be great to just like do table content more generally and have people following for that, and then eventually converting. But yeah, I haven't really considered any other channels beyond doing like a few podcasts. So there's a couple of airtable specific podcasts, and then kind of the indie Aka building public thing as well, which I think has worked pretty well. Doing when people say like message on Twitter saying do you want to do this like founder interview or whatever? Just default into yes, because as long as it doesn't take hours, it's it's a backlink and there's a chance it might go, yeah, it might get decent traffic. And I had a good experience with that a couple of months ago where one of the interviews like was on top back and used for ages. Probably got like a few hundred or a couple of hundred at least like quid of MRO off the back of it. And like the interview itself had taken like an hour. So yeah, that's why I'm here.
0: <laughs> Hopefully this will be the same for this one. <laughs> Stick on a happy to use Reddit. We'll see. There's a bit more of a lifestyle question, you know, from like when you were starting your marketing plan and stuff, did you always have like a ramen profitable goal, like a fixed figure in mind? Like I think you're the first person I saw tweet London ramen profitable, which is like, mm-hmm. I don't know, 5k a month or something, probably higher than living in Chiang Mai. But did, yeah, do did you always have that in mind? And did you ever consider like moving out of somewhere like London or were you always kind of like, oh, I want to maintain the lifestyle of being here and just try and hit my goal?
1: Yeah, I think the big two of me were five and 10K. So five, because it's like, yeah, that's kind of like, you can live in London. You're not going to have an amazing lifestyle, but you, you can live like a pretty decent lifestyle after costs and tax and stuff like that. And then 10 because it's like, that's pretty similar to what you make as a, like a contract developer. I don't think I ever wanted to like move out of London. I just enjoy it too much. It wasn't really a case of like, Oh, I'm going to go like, yeah, like move to the middle of nowhere or go to some like low cost of living country to do this that would have felt like too much of a sacrifice I think the way I kind of w- made it work financially apart from selling influence good was doing freelance work as well so yeah I was doing a few days a week or I'd work contract for a month or two and then I moved on to like fixed price like freelance projects so I was actually doing airtable extension development for like airtables enterprise people and the rates were really healthy and it was like I could completely manage my own time so they would basically you know have a month to do a few days of work, and so it meant that if support emails were coming in, or I needed to get something out to date like a bug fix, or whatever, I could just focus on that and and do the the freelance stuff around that. So what I did was just use that to top up my finances, and then gradually reduce the the time. and I think like a lot of indie hackers into to follow that path. It works pretty well, right? Because you kind of de-risk yourself, like financially, and not kind of going all in. Having said that, it's a bit miserable. Like having to juggle the two is is pretty hard. As you probably like find yourself like trying to deal with just the amount of stuff that piles up, knowing that you need to be keeping your freelance client happy. It wasn't great. So yeah, it's going full time that just quality of life just went massively. And so I was happy to pay it or kind of have a little bit less money coming in just for the, the reduction in stress, really.
0: I think this is a situation like more and more people are finding themselves in as they're building a business and to pay the bills, they also working part-time or sometimes full-time. I'm doing that myself. I contract a couple of days a week. I find the biggest issue is just like, it's just like the context switching of like, you know, having these two very different things to think about outside of like day-to-day life. Was there like anything, any little tricks that you did or just like ways you, you worked just to help you just like be productive at both of these things without like, you know, stressing yourself out too much?
1: Yeah, it's definitely a massive issue. I think the big one for me is that Paul Graham essay on like maker time and manager time. So it's basically if you've got meetings, you think like, oh, I'd put, you know, one a day and then that's only an hour a day of meetings, whatever. But actually what you're better off doing is just putting all the meetings on one day. So yeah, trying to get them all into one day. And then the days where you don't have any meetings and ideally you're not doing the freelance stuff, you can just have a full day with a hundred percent focus on, on your project. I think, yeah, once I switched to that, made really a huge difference. And then the other thing would be looking at Calm Fund and Tiny Seed. I think like the reason that they're really popular is because they get you over that initial hump of, yeah, I need to keep the money coming in with my freelancing or my day job. So I think just having 50 or 100 or however much they give you grand in the bank to, to make that switch and, and fully commit. I, mean, I kind of didn't do that because I'd sold Influence Grid and that was about 50K, which kind of felt like a bit of a, I had that site safety safety net. But if I hadn't managed to do that, 100% would have looked at those options.
0: Would you say this kind of period where you were sort of working and building data fetcher, just managing that, was that kind of the most difficult part? Or has there been like another sort of situation, which was like, would you say it's your lowest point so far in building it that you managed to get through?
1: Yeah, it probably was that time. It was also just the very early days. So like the last project, Influence Credit, grew like a weed, like it was I was adding like 500 to a 1,000 in an MRH mob from like the early months. The average price was like 60 to $70 and they're all churning. They're all going out the other side, but like over the short term, it just seemed to be growing really, really nicely. When I switched to this, it was like, I started with a price of $12 a month, I think it was, or nine, yeah, 12. And so it was just ticking up so slowly. So even if you had a day with two or three customers, it showed great. it's Still, you've only got up like 30 or 40 and then maybe you lose one. And it just was inching up so slowly. So it was just... I was trying to work out like, is this going to take like five years to get to RAM, and then just like real kind of, I guess, that like, crisis of confidence of like, is this the right thing to be working on? And then it was a month where it went down, and then I got really worried of like, have I just spent like six months kind of you know, barking at the wrong tree? But I had a good, a good chat with Michael from RAM Club, and he basically said, like, basically just preached patience and said, you know, you're you're essentially like you're ahead of where a lot of projects are. Like, you're six months in, you're on a few hundred dollars in MRI. Like it probably will work. Like, this is no time. No one knows about it, yeah. Like it's got no real momentum behind it, and so yeah, that, those early days are still probably the worst, yeah. And then there's been a few really horrendous sort of technical moments where yeah, I've just made real stupid mistakes. I'm more of a front end developer by trade, and so a couple of moments on the back end, I deleted the project in Google in like Google Cloud, so that all integrations that involve Google or YouTube or Google like search analytics they all just fail and yeah so I deleted it on a Friday went out woke up on a Saturday morning to like a customer email being like why can't why is my Google analytics coming in and like luckily Google Cloud has a sort of undo mechanism that they they keep your project around for like a month which yeah might be the best UX thing I've ever seen from Google Cloud but like yeah that was that was a, a pretty low moment as well so yeah there's been a few things like that where you just you just like you just feel like a real imposter actually, or a real cowboy. And it's like, how the hell has this got the place it is? But yeah, I think the nice thing there is like, I'm going to be able to hire a developer quite soon. And so just having someone else to come in and, and kind of look at some of the weaknesses in the code base can be very nice as well.
0: Yeah. I, t- I guess that takes you to a whole new stage, right? I, you know, as you bring on more people, we're sort of moving from the solo bootstrapper to kind of manager mode kind of thing. And like, cause I think you also have marketing freelancers as well. Are you sort of already? Trying to get advice or get clued up on that part of the journey, or you're going to sort of take it as it comes.
1: Yeah, I think at the moment I'm a little bit before that stage, so it's not quite like switching to like growing a small team and having a remote culture and that kind of stuff. At the moment, it's very much keeping it really lean. So the developer that I'm hiring is just going to do one day a week. He's traveling, just wants to do some freelance work, and we've worked together before at an old company. So it's kind of be it's going to be super informal. And then yeah, both the marketers, it's just. I think we've only spoken over email for like six months now. So it's just at the moment it's it's just kind of using freelancers where, where necessary and where to pick up some of this That And I want to see how how big we can get just keeping it really lean like that. Longer term, it might be nice to have a team, right? It might start to get a little bit lonely just just having like one full time person. I say They're definitely open to it. But I don't think I'm quite making that switch. There will be, I think, a case of like trying to codify a bit of the knowledge that's in my head, especially like on the code, but then also on support and stuff like that, and just just documentation. And yeah, at the moment, there's there's nothing. So yeah, there's definitely going to be a bit of a switch when even just a part-time developer joins, just to to get stuff down and to to document why certain decisions have been made, as well as just a, a switch from like, okay, this is the MVP and I need to get it out as soon as possible, and even the integrations, like trying to just hammer at integrations as quickly as possible, to like suddenly like okay, quite a few businesses. Core operations are relying on this stuff. We really can't afford like major bugs because we will lose customers. And so I think there's probably a shift in speed of development as well and just, just slowing down and, and being a bit more thorough and stable, I guess. So that's something I'm thinking about at the moment. Yeah. I think, I think it is a bit of a mindset shift
0: over the next couple of years. Yeah. Makes sense. Something else I know you've attributed to at least part of your success is kind of like, gaining as a developer, and I know not all developers are keen on doing this, but like sort of more of an appreciation for user testing and user research and that sort of thing. There's something that's obviously close to me as I do a lot of user research in my in my day job. But yeah, do you want to talk a bit about sort of what your approach to it now is a data fetcher that you think is like something you want to continue doing? Yeah. So
1: originally I think I had really taken on board this concept, like the mob test and stuff like that. Like don't talk about solutions. Only talk about people's pain points, their day-to-day like specifics and stuff like that. Never talk about your product. And for some reason, I kind of took that to the point of like, so never watch anyone use your product, which is definitely a completely separate thing. That's user testing versus like customer research. But yeah, so for the first year, year and a bit, I probably only saw like a few people use it when I was on a call with them, whatever. And then sort of through accident, I changed the UX fit quite radically of, of Data Fetcher. So Rather than it just being like an API tool, it was kind of like a, a no-code tool, right? And so, because it was such a big change, I went to watch like a load of people use the app, and so I had like a load of calls, some with like yeah, Rama Club members like self, and then some with existing customers. I gave them like a free month, whatever, to get them to do it. And Then I saw all of these UX issues and the rest of the app, and in like other bits of the, of the UI and stuff that I just had been there for months. And so, yeah, the rest of it improved loads, and I suddenly realised like I should have been doing this the whole time, like. He's like, just basically telling someone, okay, try and do X. I'm going to shut up now. And then just watching them do it on a, on a call. And yeah, it was huge. So what I do now basically is I don't have any sort of formal thing where I'm like, okay, I need to keep, keep doing that. But I have a thing where anyone can book a support call. So there's the calendar on the, on the website. And so anyone like free user or paid can book a support call. And what happens on like 80% of those support calls is they share their screen. And then I watch them setting stuff up. And I see bugs and I see like other bits and pieces and I, I try to see what they do instinctively and then tell them how to do it, obviously within the, like without being totally unhelpful. But that's quite good because it kind of forces me to do that user test in like most weeks. Yeah. And then the other thing actually similar to that is for a long time, I wanted to like outsource the support as soon as possible, just like get a part-time customer support rep that could could do everything. And now I've realized actually it's way too soon to do that until the product's like more mature, I think doing that's actually just going to like cut off the biggest sor- source of feedback. So yeah, it's annoying doing all the like, I don't know, reset my password or change my pattern or whatever, but that's only about half the support. The other stuff is super nitty gritty, like UI feedback, or you start noticing that the same setting is needed misconfigured like over and over and you need to kind of make the label clearer or make like the default, a different setting, whatever. So yeah, that's been, that's been a massive help actually. And yeah, as you say, it's not, as developers are not.
0: Really used to doing that, but it's yeah, it's super important. I think it sounds like you know, obviously, you've learned a lot from doing this and from doing Infinite Squid and that that sort of thing. What's the most common advice you tend to give like other aspiring bootstrap founders based on your experience?
1: Yeah, I think launching something pretty quickly is, is the big one. I think people you do see people spending like six months on something and then launching it, and and yeah, so I think that you probably. Need to launch with like less, less features and, and less kind of quality than you think. So if you can launch something in two or three months, just use a tech stack. You know, assume you've got like products on, on Reddit and stuff like that as an initial test of will anyone pay for this? Not as a scalable market channel, but just trying to get something ASAP and then launching it. You can get one or two customers through that. And then you can find a scalable market channel. Like that's all you need. Right. So that's probably just launching quicker than, than you, than you think you need. Like. Influence got the first version of it. If you upgraded and like, bought an account, all that changed is the sign-in header changed to sign-out. Like There was nothing except the TikTok data, and that's what people were there for. And so, yeah, I think you can actually get away with a lot less stuff than than you need if you're solving like a real pain point for
0: people. It sounds like you try and get some sort of signals that something might be interesting, you know, to to start working on something. Like you saw that Etsy was taken off and something similar works on Google Sheets, and that was enough to get you started. But... You don't really know for sure until someone starts paying for it, but like how much kind of effort or time are you willing to put in to go from like, I've come up with an idea to, okay, it's possible someone can, can pay for it now kind of thing.
1: I think you probably want one, like you want to find one use case, right? So like one specific path through the product. And so for data fetcher, that was like important data from an API, but things like what it does now is it'll look at like, okay, what, what type of data is is it emails? Is it URLs? Is it image attachments? Whatever. And it will suggest fields and it is quite, it's super nuanced within that. The original version basically just pulled it back, was opinionated about what feels it was going to map to an air table and just like threw it in there. And it was like really pretty, pretty tricky to use, but it did do that one core thing. So I think it's basically trying to find that. And often that's like a forum post or that's someone on Twitter being like, is there any way to do? this in-air table or something like that and so uh, yeah basically just finding one like happy part through it and then building something that solves that but yeah yeah i'm afraid there's not like a really nice like sort of general test of it i think it's each case is a little bit different right
0: yeah i don't think there's i think everyone's looking for a formula sometimes Mm. (laughs) with these things and i think it comes from like i think instinctively you learn it from trial and error and shipping a few things seeing what works and what doesn't sort of things no i think that was a Perfectly reasonable answer. But yeah, I think sometimes people are looking for like a pain by numbers of how to create a successful business and it just doesn't always exist. There's just sort of principles that do and don't work, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had an experience recently where I tried to launch like another project using like the stable diffusion to create like art prints. And like with that, I almost still feel like there's something there. But like I felt like I'd built the Happy path, and over like a week no one bought anything. And I thought that's that's enough of a signal that my sort of this like. That's that's not gonna work.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And in terms of where you wanna go from here, do you have like a vision for like where you wanna take data fetcher in let's say a three year time frame in terms of like, you know, any goals in terms of like revenue or team or just like what the product does, basically? Yeah. In terms of the product, I think for the next like few
1: months at least. There's a lot further to go just within this core concept, pulling data in from somewhere else into it. There's massive tools built on like Google Sheets. There's one called Supermetrics. It's like a hundred million era, and they're essentially just connecting to marketing APIs and pulling that in. So I know there's a lot more room to grow just within that use case. Beyond that, I might start to think more about kind of two-way syncs. So syncing it with Webflow and Airtable and having kind of more platforms and then more directions and so not just going from somewhere else into into a table. So that's kind of how I think about the product. But I definitely just want to do one thing really, really well rather than trying to make it too broad. I think that's the reason that people use it at the moment is because it's really good at that one thing. And every time you introduce something different, you risk complicating that, making it harder. In terms of team, yeah, still pretty open question. As I said, like, I want to keep it really lean for now and just keep the profit margins high. But longer term, like, it might be fun to, to grow a little team. I do worry a little bit with platform risk on that one where it's like it's just my livelihood and freelancers where you have no obligation to keep funding them then that's fine but like if i wanted to hire people full-time and give people sort of longer term opportunities i would worry a bit more about the platform risk i think than if it was other people's livelihoods at risk so maybe that's something that comes after it's become a broader tool but yeah that that stuff feels quite a off. for now it's keep the team really lean keep adding integrations and tightening up the ux and then yeah i'd love to get to like a thousand customers, sort of three hundred at the moment. Love to get a thousand customers in a couple of years, and just keep the profit margins really high, and keep keep funneling off the uh, the funds into into more diverse income streams. And yeah, I've got a couple of other SaaS ideas as well. So in some ways, I think Data Fetcher might be the perfect project to like use as a, a cash cow, basically. And accept that yeah, it probably won't be around in like ten fifteen years because Airtable might be irrelevant. But it's like a perfect kind of small to medium like SaaS business. I can use the the
0: freedom and the, the funds from it to like launch other slightly, slightly bigger ideas. So, yeah, who knows? That sounds, uh, all sounds awesome and, and very achievable. Are you ready to drop the alpha and those other SaaS ideas yet? Or are you keeping your cards to your chest for now? Yeah, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Probably wise, probably wise. Before we open up to a few questions from the community, um, I saw this interesting quote that you said on like the end of one of your blog posts related to what you were just saying actually. And data fetcher, which is a diversify the profits, not the products. So in terms of like, you know, where you kind of spend that revenue in other, maybe non saas areas rather than like creating shitloads of like similar features or different features. Yeah. Do you want to touch a bit on that? Yeah, sure.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think it, as a as a business, like as a product, it does sit in this really nice sweet spot at the moment, right? So there's no like VC-backed company on the marketplace that's, that's coming and built an app because the total opportunity is just probably not big enough. So there's obviously the platform risk of beer table, but the the risk of like massive competition, I think is reasonably low. So there are a couple of competitors, they're similarly small teams or like one person businesses, and I kind of back myself against them, but there's no like 200 pound gorilla that's going to come in and crush me at the moment. And so I think given that it sits in this lovely sweet spot where it completely changed my life. Like if you get to 500k, ARR, that's completely life changing, right? But it's also way too small for any sort of massive competition. So why not shoot for that? Got, I'm kind of a third away there. That seems like a really like big goal, but, but doable. So that's kind of how I look at like the competition, like the financial side. And then I don't think you need to complicate the product to get there. So you can just stay where it is, keep making it better, keep improving the marketing and get to that. But obviously, if you can keep the profit margins really good, you could then be funneling off 100, 200 grand a year into index funds or like rental property or something that's more of a, a sure shorter long-term thing. And so I think that would be a great way to kind of de-risk over five, 10 years. So that's kind of how I think about it, like trying to use it as a, yeah, like I said, like a cash guy rather than being like, oh, I'm going to try and make everything to everyone and then starting to compete with, Zapier and like, I mean, there's loads and loads of integration tools and, and connectors. There's, um, you, you work for one, right? There's, there's literally dozens of dozens of like ones with like serious funding. So I think trying to compete with them head to head would be really difficult, but trying to just stay in my lane could get to somewhere where this is like completely changed life and livelihood without like a massive risk of, of it, of it not working. I guess it's like the whole indie hacker ethos, right? Of like, do you want to raise funding and go for the one in a thousand or one in 10,000 billion? dollar exit or do you just want to bootstrap steadily and get to something that's doing a few hundred grand and bit like a little bit more in in ARL and then yeah, having a really nice lifestyle nice business.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because like as a bootstrapper, once you get to like a certain degree of success or qu- growing quickly, suddenly you get interest from investors when you don't need them or don't need them as much as maybe when you're like starting out. So it's a, interesting paradox. But yeah, what you're saying, yeah, I think that's definitely something for a lot of bootstrappers to aspire to. So just before we open up to others, are there any other kind of questions that you've done a lot of these interviews now, Andy, or like, you know, they're certainly speeding up the last year or so. But like, are there any questions that nobody ever asked you or, or things that you want to talk about that you would like to? Not really. I
1: mean, it's going to sound like a plug, but I do think like you do need people around you that are doing similar stuff. Like I yeah. think it would, I think MRI would not be as high without doing stuff onto Twitter, wrong Club. And then the other one actually is not just people at a similar stage, people a little bit ahead of you. Mm. I've been lucky to meet a couple of people, customers who've given me really good advice and then reached out to a couple of people through Twitter and just said, how do you feel about mentoring me? And people who are sort of two to 10 years ahead of me, just basically asking if they could be like an infrequent mentor. And so whenever there's been like a huge decision, like do I try and build a Monday app or like whatever decision it is, Basically, just like talking it through with them as well. So I think, yeah, it is. I think people probably underappreciate how important the network is, and I definitely did like starting out where I just, yeah, kind of just build and launch and I think it's all about the tech and the marketing. But actually, so much because it's just you. So much of it is your motivation and your decisions, and that comes from from people around you. Right?
0: Yeah, I, I totally agree because I also think there's just certain types of questions where like there's just not it there's just not like a piece of content written or good piece of content written on every question that's easy to find like a lot of these questions are like you can they are kind of better answered like in conversations or like in communities and that kind of thing there's also some things people don't really want to write about too much publicly or they don't think there's a big <laughs> enough audience so yeah so yeah. 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 (laughs) Yeah. All sorts of things like, you know, books and blogs and YouTube is great, but sometimes you just need to ask like a real human who's been there. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And yeah, often, often the situation is, is
1: slightly unique or slightly. Yeah. Like it's, it's a recent, I don't know, a a recent change stats in general and stuff that the blogs that I've written about it are five years out and say like the things that used to happen don't don't really make sense anymore. You need somebody's kind of got their way to
0: the Yeah. And I think also sometimes when you, the answers you get from like asking someone in a similar position, it's 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 a lot more sort of earnest, like the answer, whereas a lot of the stuff that's easy to find on say Google was sometimes just SEO to death and just trying to get you to Mm -hmm. like sign up to something. And you know, that, that makes a difference as well. Cool. All right. Well, we've got some time to open us up to a few kind of questions from the community. So, um, what's up? What percentage of customers come from Airtable table marketplace versus other channels?
1: Yeah. So it's probably about seventy to eighty percent. Yeah. It's it really varies. Like I thought that all the extra marketing I was doing was driving it up. And there were a couple of months at the start of this year where it's going up to like forty percent and then it slowly started creeping down again. So I'm not totally sure why that is. But like, yeah, generally it's about it's about thirty percent. And yeah, it's as I said, like it's really hard to do the attribution, but people i could see directly came because the way that i do it as i say in the tutorial like save your request with this name and then i can see in from their usage have they have they done that and yeah it's about about 30 percent which is nice because it means you can actually get you can work out like a return on investment on a on a video so if you can see that five people followed that video and your lifetime value is two hundred dollars you'd be happy to pay something under a thousand dollars for the for a video so yeah it's it varies, by about
0: 70%. From Airtable marketplace, would you say you were fortunate that people were already searching for API solutions? Yeah,
1: definitely. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there was definitely a underlying need. And it's interesting because there is there is scripting on Airtable. It's probably something I should have mentioned. So you've got all these no-code tools, like Zapier or whatever, and then you've got a lot of APIs and stuff that aren't on Zapier. There. And then there's the scripting. So there's like an Airtable extension that lets you write kind of JavaScript in the Airtable and, and import stuff. So my sweet spot is between those two extremes. Yeah, is kind of nearer the scripting and then I'm kind of moving it more and more towards Zapier as it becomes more no coding. But yeah, people are already looking out to do this. Yeah, one thing I didn't say is because my sweet spot is semi-technical people, it does increase the support. It's often having to help people understand the API that they're trying to connect to and then how to use data fetching can be a bit tricky, but I think it's quite like, that means that they're not gonna be able to write a script and replace it super easily. It's quite good in a way, yeah. nothing thing about that actually is because the marketplace is really early, there's no like marketplace SEO or anything too sophisticated. Versus like Shopify, they I think they're constantly like ranking the different apps against each other to the point when like now when people launch on Shopify, They'll make the app free for six months just to get ratings and reviews and like climb those rankings and then they'll turn on paid stuff. Luckily Airtables is so new and the number of apps is so low that generally yeah, there's not that like cutthroat competition for search terms. It's more just, you know, having a few keywords in there. If they search for any of those, then DataFest shows up.
0: Andy, thank you so much for coming on this pod. Great speak to you as ever. And really insightful answers. I think it's gonna be really, you know, useful for people like in a similar or slightly earlier position or, you know, trying to reach your kind of success with data fetches. So yeah, very much appreciated. Awesome. It was a pleasure. See you soon, man. Cheers. Bye. Bye.